have a few announcements to share with you. And uh, we'll be getting into a new series this evening and looking forward to our study of evangelism in the end times. And so we're going to be talking about uh, that process, kind of a dovetail off of the last few that we've done uh, in Peter. As we have finished up last week, the end of all things is at hand. How then should we respond? And we finished that up last week with our blessed hope and the glory that we look forward to participating with in heaven with our Lord. Uh, and so we're going to be uh, talking about the uh, proclamation of the gospel during those times when the love of many grow cold. So we're going to be talking about uh, the challenges and the uh, mechanisms that the Bible tells us to use in response to that. First Peter, now having left chapter 4 and completed that last week, we move into chapter 5 and we shift gears rather dramatically uh, there is one element that we're going to see carried over from the verses prior, but we're going to shift from really talking about uh, suffering and how to engage ourselves in the end days to moving into relationships. Remember, that is one of the key mega uh, themes of Peter, is the relationships we have, certainly uh, endurance and suffering and the, and the Christology that we see but he wants to develop those relationships. We've already seen several relationships that he's talked about in prior chapters. He now comes into one relationship particularly, uh, and, uh, and that is within, our, within the leadership of the church. And so on these occasions, these are the sermons you get to simply listen in on uh, because they're not really directed to you. They're directed to me. And so these are the sermons that are sometimes a little difficult in the past, what I've always done, because as a church planter, my plan was not to stay as the pastor for very long uh, to get a church started and then turn over to someone else. I usually use these opportunities to preach to the future pastor. And really that means directing you to the selection and the encouragement and the response to pastors, whether positive or negative, depending upon their following after God's word. But as that is not in the purview, really, of my expectations right now, uh, that's really directed to me and to the role that not only I myself have, um, but your response to that. Uh, but that's not Peter's concern. Peter's primary concern is over the pastoral responsibilities. He doesn't really address extensively what your response to those, to those uh, are. And we're going to touch on them briefly as other passages do refer to those uh, and they are available uh, for us to consider. But we want to look certainly not only um, about the qualifications, that's usually where we begin, of that office, but also the functions that they perform and the purpose of those functions. And that's really what we want to uh, focus in on this morning. And so Peter comes to them not from the outside looking in, but as one of the elders of the church himself, and in fact a chief one, for he is one who has witnessed Christ personally. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Uh, there's only four of them here, uh, but let's read them together in 1 Peter 5. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. It says, The elders who are among you I exhort... 
I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The one theme that we have carried over, the, the terminology is being carried over from chapter 4, that we focus in particularly on the last three messages, was the concept of bringing glory to God. That this is our greatest endeavor, this is really our purpose, is to bring glory to God. We looked at it in terms of responding to the end times and the sufferings that we anticipate there, that we are going to walk in righteousness, that we're going to have to uh, endure uh, not as evildoers, uh, not doing evil, but rather for Christ's name, for his glory. And then also with an expectation of what God has in store for us, that all of this encourages us to do that, which will bring glory to God. Recognizing him as our creator, our sustainer, our deliverer, our judge, all these things, and the rewarder of those who seek him. But now we come to the aspect of glory, and, and we find that he references Christ's connection and, and the witness of Christ's sacrifice and the, and the glory that he saw there, uh, and the glory that is going to be coming. But then he also uh, calls us that we are going to participate in that glory, that he who is faithful in this charge of his duties in this responsibility has an expectation that we are going to participate with Christ, uh, and he refers to the crown of glory that does not fade away uh, to those that are faithful. And I am certain this is not limited simply to those that minister in the office of pastor, elder, bishop, but to all who are faithful stewards of the manifold gift of God. This is what we driven off of from chapter 4, verse 10, that we are to be faithful stewards, managers of God's many-faceted grace, that he has graced us in many different ways, that we are to serve him in all those ways. And I'm certain that while we focus on one particular one in this passage, uh, we can apply many of these principles to the other services going on in the church to God's glory. So, Peter comes from this from a perspective of being one of you. Uh, and, and certainly that is his role. And he is not isolated, doesn't consider himself the greatest of them all. Uh, in fact, he's going to reference uh, Paul and, and talk about his writings later on. And, and uh, we're going to find that uh, he sees that Paul's ministry is unique and important and valuable to the church. Uh, he sees his fellow elders as their ministries are important and valuable. He simply comes and says, I am your fellow. I am your, your, I'm another one like you. And I have a couple of things that are to my advantage. And he's going to list those. I, I am a fellow elder and I, I want to give you a directive. And that directive is going to come beginning in verse 2. But he's going to set the groundwork for this conversation. That I'm a fellow elder. I am simply one of you, and so I am exhorting you. I am bringing this exhortation uh, not 
from above you, not from below you, but laterally to you. Uh, I, I am not uh, superior to you. I am not inferior to you. And so I come to you as an elder uh, with an exhortation to you as elders. Now certainly by this point, Peter is well along his uh, ministry life in terms of serving God faithfully over these many years. And so he comes and he says, I'm a fellow elder. That's, all, that, that's the main basis of this exhortation. Secondarily, I come before you as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And this is the one advantage he would have had over perhaps many to whom he is writing. For he had that eyewitness opportunity. And what he doesn't focus in is, I'm not an eyewitness of the miracles of Christ. It's not because I heard the teachings of Christ personally and out of his very mouth. Uh, for that is not superior to God's word. And he's going to make that case later on uh, when he talks about all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. So, so we're going to have those kinds. That's, that's, that's Paul and Timothy, different pastor, different, another pastor. But he's going to talk about the inspiration of scripture as well. So we're going to see him develop that. So that's not what he mentions. He doesn't say, well, I was taught by Jesus himself. I saw the miracles. He's not going to focus on those. That doesn't really correlate to his major theme. The one thing he's going to say, though, I have one advantage, perhaps, over you, and that is that I got to eyewitness the suffering of Christ. Now, this is not just the suffering on the cross. I am certain that this is encapsulating much of that, of the opposition he received of being hunted uh, uh, on several occasions where he had to uh, miraculously just walk through a crowd, disappear because they wanted to lay hands on him and to uh, do him injury on several occasions. Certainly, it was also the sufferings of the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and, of course, the sufferings on the cross. He witnessed Christ's suffering. Remember, as the secondary, as one of the, not secondary, it's really, they're all equal, as the, uh, one of the other major themes of suffering, he says, I want to know that, let you know that I saw Christ's suffering. And maybe, and this might be projecting a little bit into the text, he could even Witness the fact that on a couple occasions at least, he was kind of the instigator of some of his suffering. For as much as we think of Christ's suffering on the cross, consider the suffering of having one of your inner three deny you three times. Of, of ministering to these for all these years and months and, and pouring yourself into them only to have to rebuke them and chastise them uh, and even call them and to say these words, get behind me Satan to them, that they are the tempters of, and they are the betrayers, they are the deniers, that, that they have added to the sufferings of Christ in that manner. But Peter says, I, I'm the witness, I, I witnessed to it. I saw his sufferings. I saw the injury that occurred to him, not only physically, but uh, mentally, to uh, relationally, and yes, even spiritually, as he was separated from the Father. When he became our sin. So Peter has this advantage. He says, I have witnessed the sufferings of Christ myself. 
but I am also with you as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And this is where he's going to initiate this concept. He's going to conclude it in verse 4, that not only am I a witness of Christ's sufferings, uh, but I am well along in my ministry, and now I am ready and expectant to be a partaker of the glory uh, that will be revealed. And again, just as we left off in chapter 4 about that glory of God that awaits us, that while we anticipate judgment, which should produce righteousness, we also anticipate a great wonderful reward that we should respond with joy. And so there should be a joyfulness in all of our endurance, even as Christ had that joyfulness. And Peter says that's going to extend into ministry. We minister out of joy, knowing that we will be partakers of a glory that will be one day revealed. It's not revealed today. It will be revealed. Uh, we anticipate it. Uh, it will be shown. And right now it is cloaked from our vision. Uh, but one day it will be seen clearly. And it is on that day that Peter was concerned not only for himself, for certainly he put himself in that category, I want to be a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Paul puts himself in Philippians 3, I want to participate in that glory of the resurrection. I don't want to miss that. I want to finish the race. I want to, I want to be that faithful steward. And so uh, Peter himself says, I want to be a partaker of that glory when it is revealed. There's a future he's still looking for at the end of his ministry. He is not considering it the end, but as a movement towards its fulfillment, which is a very different concept. And so he comes to them as an elder. Now, we want to define some terms this morning. I think there, this, is, this is a little bit uh, uh, informational uh, for you and and since most of this is directed toward me. We have, in this one passage, one of the most important passages for us in understanding the definition of these terms. Uh, in our day, and it's nothing new in this day, because in prior days there's been this hierarchicalness concept to these terminologies of church leadership. That somehow we have uh, and of all these levels of leadership that you can ascend up into this uh, to ministry. Uh, and so you have this lower description, and then you go up and up. And then, of course, um, in uh, some traditions, you go up into the, the father or the papal, the, the pope. Uh, you have cardinals, you have bishops, you have, pre you have all these hierarchies. And that is reflected sometimes in, in Protestant churches as well. You have these hierarchies. Uh, and even among Baptist circles, we are starting to see that being presented. Uh, and uh, that is not our position, is not in Scripture whatsoever. And if anyone had any claim to that kind of hierarchical position, it would have been Peter, right? But he doesn't claim that at all. He claims, I'm just a fellow elder. I am, I, I am a witness of Christ, so I am, and he talks about his, uh, that role but I'm really just a partaker of the glory that will be. I still have my future too. I still have to be faithful too if I'm going to acquire to anything in, in this next world. And so I have to persist in this faithfulness. And so he doesn't establish himself on this hierarchical levels. And most of the hierarchies that I see being propagated, even among Baptist circles right now, 
is built upon these terms of pastor, elder, and bishop. Now, in our doctrinal statement of this church, we clearly and, and concisely declare these all refer to the exact same office in the church. And the premise of that is this particular passage. Because Peter here uses all three terms all together to refer to the same guy. He's referring to the elders who are shepherds, who are overseers. Overseers is the term bishop. They're all three used here. This is the only place all three are used together, and that's why this is such an important passage to understand that we are not referring to, well, pastors are here, elders are there, and bishops are up here. That somehow this is the hierarchy in the church. Well, that can't be, because in this very passage, you have all three concepts that, that are presented as a singular responsibility of this one man, this one office, this one position in the church, that there is no hierarchy within. Not even Peter himself wants to acknowledge that, that hierarchy. I'm just a fellow elder. He doesn't put upon himself any higher claim to any other office. Nor does he separate the leadership of the church into those offices. Now, we do have another office in the church described as deacon, and we have information on that. Uh, but, uh, and that's the servant, the leadership of the church, and we're, we can refer to that. But in terms of the role of the pastor, and pastor means shepherd. Okay, So when you see the first instruction, the first exhortation to him is built upon the idea, you're an under-shepherd. You're a shepherd boy. Shepherd. That's, and if we want to take it into the titledom, uh, we'll say, pastor, you are the past, go pastor. And that is to be a shepherd over a flock of sheep. And that is the role, but not the chief shepherd. That is reserved, and that's going to be talked about. And that is the only hierarchy, is that there is the chief shepherd, and then there's all the rest of us shepherds, under shepherds. That is the singular hierarchy, is that there is Christ, and then there are the, those that are called upon by him to shepherd his flock. And again, we are stewards of his grace. We are, we, these are not our flocks, these are really his flock that we are given responsibility over. And so we have elders right off the bat not just the older people of the church, and some have made that, and there's been so much confusion in this area, uh, usually attributed to a guy in California and, and in conservative circles anyway, uh, propagating this elder stuff as distinct from the pastoral role, and that is just wrong, and this is the passage that proves it wrong. That we're not just talking about, well, get all the gray-haired guys together, and those are your elders, no. This is a very specific office that has specific responsibilities and specific requirements placed upon them and qualifications. It's not just age. Now, I understand that in 1 Timothy 3 that, Peter, that Paul uses the term bishop or overseer uh, in that passage, but it does not neglect that that is also the pastor, that is also uh, the elders. And in fact, in 
Acts chapter 14, where Paul revisits the churches, one of the things he says is they selected elders for each of the churches. That they had to go through and do that. That was one of the things he saw, that as they matured as a church, they would each need elder or elders. And they were not just the old guys, otherwise Paul would not have had to be participating in the selection process to decide who would fulfill that role. Further, we have instructions to Timothy, a younger man, to fulfill the role uh, that is placed upon him as a pastor, elder, bishop. Now, does the term elder imply that there should be an age requirement? Yes, I think so. And that is reflected in Paul's description where he says, well, he should not be a novice. That is not a new believer and there should be a level of experience and a level of some wisdom that is in this person and that can be achieved even in a younger age. I'm going to use that very carefully. Uh, as I get older, younger gets older too. I've noticed that, um, that now I think of people in their 20s like I used to think of teenagers uh, because it's so far remote from me. So I call 20-year-olds kids I would have never called. I mean, I remember when I used to thought, they are old. Right, Elizabeth? Yeah. Don't you think Miss Valerie's old? Yeah, yeah, you do. Just admit it. So we're not talking about age in, in the concept of saying, well, you can't be a pastor till you're 40. I'm not saying that, but rather of maturity, particularly in your walk with the Lord. Where are you at in that? And Paul had that because he, or I'm sorry, Timothy had that because he, he was sent out with, with Paul as a very young man. He traveled with him extensively because we know when he arrived he, and we know how long Paul continued to minister. And so he ministered under Paul for that period of time and got that, that level of experience and maturity and showed himself to be faithful. And then he was sent out by Paul to minister extensively in many of the churches they planted. But Paul still considered him a young man. In Judaism, uh, generally you were expected to be 40 years old by the time you took that place in leadership within the Jewish community, within the synagogue or in the temple. Um, but we're not going to set an age. Uh, God has pulled out prophets from uh, some men who are youthful, very young, uh, and, and some that were quite old before they got into that role extensively. But what we're looking for is a maturity. So the term elder is referring to the concept that we have a spiritually mature individual. Not someone who has just got saved and then the next week says, I want to be a pastor. Now that was my experience. Because I accepted the Lord on Tuesday at camp. I went forward Friday at camp, the same week at camp, and committed myself to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he would have me. I didn't know it would be a pastor. I was... Sure, he wanted me to be something other than that because that's just frightened me to my core to think of doing that. Uh, so, but in terms of the calling to that office, there should be a concept of maturity. You can be called, but that doesn't mean you're qualified yet. Until you demonstrate that uh, capacity to handle God's word, to be an example, as we're going to see here as one of the exhortations, to be not a new believer and don't behave like one. Don't teach like one. To not be uh, carried off by every whim of doctrine that comes along, but that you can be established in God's word. 
and that takes time. Hence the word elder, the concept of shepherding, we understand, hopefully, of the nurture and care of those placed under your authority. We are not called to be ranchers. When I was going through seminary, they had these surveys they would send out to churches to uh, figure out what churches wanted from a pastor. And, and essentially, uh, when it came back, they concluded that churches didn't want pastors at all. They wanted, they wanted ranchers. They want people to drive them and you know, build it all up and get the herd going and, and do all the thing and crack the whip and move you along. And I said, but that's not what God's word calls us to do. You see, a shepherding is very different than ranching. You can do ranching from a horse. You can't shepherd from a horse. Your sheep need to hear your voice, and they'll respond. You need to be walking with them, and many times you have to carry them and walk with them. And and there is a relationship there that is is, uh, necessary to do shepherding well. A nurturing care, an understanding of who the sheep are, where they are, and is there one missing? There's one missing. I'm going to leave the 99 and go search for the one. And I might have to break their leg and then carry them with me till the leg is healed just to keep them from wandering off ever again. And that is a shepherding practice. along with a lot of other ones that don't sound very appealing because they aren't. But they're necessary and, and worthwhile to keep the flock, to guard the flock from predators. It requires you to be among them and with them, and hence the shepherding. And then the term overseer or bishop. And that is that we are not ruling and that is very clear here, we're going to get to it in verse 3, but that we have an authoritarian responsibility for them. They are the overseers of your souls, the Bible says. And that is that, that I accept responsibility for your spiritual development. And that means that I need to make sure that not only that my teaching is accurate and according to God's word, but other influences in your life are equally as committed to God's word. And that when you have wolves come in among the sheep, that I identify them and say, beware, get away from them and drive the wolf away. I don't drive the sheep away from the wolf. Nor do I let the wolf just mingle with the sheep. We drive the wolves off. But then there has to be a warning to the sheep to be cautious and to recognize that there are those that would dissuade you from following after God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and want you to follow after them instead. And there is warning after warning after warning in the scriptures and the New Testament. Every book but one or two have that warning against false teachers, doesn't it? Beware. Watch out. Well, my responsibility is to help you watch out And hence, an overseer not using that authority to dictate things to the church, but rather to guard the church from error, from 
sin, from false practices. And so these are the three terms. And it is very clear from 1 Peter 5 that they refer to the same office. And those that want to distinguish these and, and separate them do injury to the church. How does that do injury to the church to have more leaders? I thought more leaders, no. <laughs> because you are, you are dismantling God's design. You are um, taking a design that God has where he is the chief shepherd. He has the shepherds, uh, the elders, the the leadership that have these qualifications, these requirements of them, and then we have uh, the accountability that is there to the chief shepherd. We have the responsibilities upon him and the qualifications. And what happens (laughs) all the time is that as soon as we start setting these up as separate offices, we start diminishing qualifications and expectations and responsibilities. And now we have bishops that don't have pastoral responsibilities. And that is unhealthy. I'll tell you why it's unhealthy. And, and, and in college and even seminary, uh, I appreciated so much the professors that understood the unhealthiness of that and realized that I can't just teach theology in college if I'm not ministering God's word every Sunday. I cannot train pastors while not being a pastor. And those were the better professors, frankly. We call it the ivory tower, those that just sit there and can do theology and do all this stuff and and teach, 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 but they are disconnected from the local church in terms of the pastoral role. Peter would never see that of disconnecting, somehow now I have an administrative responsibility. And we see churches where they go in and, and, well, I'm just the preaching pastor. I don't have other responsibilities. Well, that's foreign to God's word. That kind of dismantling of this always does injury to the church. And so the bishop role becomes this administrative role overseeing other, other pastors rather than uh, ministering directly to the people. And, it, and, you, and out of that context produces many errors in church, in Christendom. Many of those errors have been produced because these men aren't connected to the flock. And it is very easy to get off theologically. It's very easy to get, get off practically in what, how we're doing life and, and ministry. It's very easy to get off in terms of, of realizing, well, what do our people need? What does God desire for them? Once we dis, dis, and then the other side of this, so that's the higher side where we take bishop and elevate it, um, away from the role of the pastor. And then we have the term elder that, that we, we lower it now. And now, while well, everyone can be an elder, and now we don't have to fulfill the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 6. And we don't have to, the, now we can diminish the, requir- the uh, uh, 
the expectations of their life, and now we also don't have them, and now we have ruling elders and teaching elders and serving elders. This is a Presbyterian model uh, that we divide this up into these different categories, and, and so you don't carry the same responsibility. Again, foreign to God's word. There is a reason these three are in a single office. Because once you start dividing those up into those kinds of ways, you will always do injury to the church. Because you will have disagreement between them, you will have this compartmentalizing of the church, and that is not God's design. Why did the church have plurality of elders? Well, if you look very carefully, when Paul goes in and selects elders in the cities, uh, how many elders does the city of Albuquerque require? Oh, it's the church of the city, not the little local church. How many elders do we require? And so the churches did not have facilities even as modest as this. They were meeting in homes. Uh, they were probably uh, between 50, 100 apiece, maybe. Upper rooms could handle sometimes over 100, 120. Uh, so they got to that size, and they would do what? multiply. They would have another house church, and that house church would require what? Another elder. Now we have the elders of the city of Ephesus coming to meet Paul, and they had to travel to him because Paul didn't want to stay there because he knew once he got to Ephesus, he wouldn't want to leave. So he says, send the elders down to talk to me. That wasn't one church that met in a giant building in the center of Ephesus. That was the Colosseum, by the way. No, it was the elders of all the little house churches that spotted all over that that very developed city of Ephesus, expansive city, with a huge population. But each one of those had a responsibility for theology. Each one of those had a responsibility for pastoral care. Each one of those had a responsibility to guard the flock. Each one of those has those responsibilities over his particular flock. And then they had a fellowship of elders. And Peter writes to them and says, I, as one of your fellow elders, I have an exhortation to you and that they could exhort one another. But each one of them had that responsibility. Once we break this out and we say, well, the pastor is just one of three offices of hierarchical in the church, and then pretty soon people start adding other levels, don't they? doesn't take long before people start to divide that. And we do injury to the church. I see nothing in God's word that somehow there are specialists in the pastoral role. I don't see it. In fact, in Ephesians where we find the instruction of the gifts that are given to us, it's, uh, it, there's a term there that says pastor and teachers. And uh, every good Bible scholar knows that that's the same, it's, the, it's a hyphenated word. It's pastor-teachers. Because it's really the same guy. That yes, there are evangelists, they have a, a distinct purpose that is then, so we distinguish them from pastors, and, and, but their role is completely different. The apostolic role was different, the prophetic role different, but the pastor teachers 
are the day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out leadership that God has designed for the local church. And it has come under attack. And that shouldn't surprise us. Does it surprise you? It shouldn't. It's similar to how the world attacks the, hier- the, the responsibilities within the home. Almost said hierarchy. We don't we're against that. They want to attack the role and the, and the requirements and the expectations of, of what it means to be a husband, or what it means to be a father, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a child. They want to destroy those. Similarly in church leadership, they want to destroy it. And sometimes with good intentions. But once we wander from God's word, we will always jeopardize the church. We'll never strengthen her. So that's my tirade, okay? Now let's get to verse 2. The actual exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. We begin with this shepherding role that we have already talked about, but please notice is the flock of God. It is his flock that is among us. And so it is not that it is that this flock is the only flock, but the flock of God that is among us, that's around me. The one that I have uh, uh, enough of a reach to minister to effectually, and, and I would contend again that I you cannot do that into the thousands very well, uh, but certainly uh, that I can. Those that I can reach, those the, I shepherd them that are among me, within my reach. I cannot shepherd people across the country. I cannot shepherd people across an ocean. I can't. I, I know you think it can be done electronically, but that's a lie of the devil. It cannot. You cannot shepherd that way. Now, I have my grandchildren watch a video when they're very young, and it's the only video really they watched when they were really young with me online, and it was people driving cattle with a drone. And it's got this cool Western music, you know, and, and we you know, do the little thing like you're riding the horse, but it's actually a drone. If you try to use a drone on sheep and try to talk to them through the drone and do it all electronically, um, you're going to be a... a a dismal failure. <laughs> okay, they just scatter. Um, cattle tend to stay together. But you're not cattle. It's not the herd of God. It's the flock of God. And that's among you. And so you are to shepherd those that are within your reach. They're within the, the extent that you're able to shepherd them. I cannot shepherd people in the Philippines. Even though I have contact with them, engagement with them, and we can have discourse, and we can, I, I cannot see their life. I don't know what their, what their uh, living is. I don't know what their needs are. I can engage them on one level, but ultimately I say, you need to go talk to your pastor. Why? Because he's within your reach, and you're within his. There needs to be this personalness to pastoring. And hence, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, that's within your influence directly and personally. And we have lost track of the idea that the pastoral role is a personal role. The old terminology uh, spoke to that. 
And it's interesting that we use the word pastor in our circles more than, uh, in, in some churches they use the word bishop more, uh, and uh, in other circles it's elders. Um, we, we focus on pastor. It's usually probably considered the lesser of the three titles uh, for the same office. But uh, we use that term pastor. Uh, we used to use uh, other terms. We used to use the word parson. How many of you remember? I, oh, we're in the Old West. It was the parson. Well, the parson is just, uh, it means the number one person of the town or the village or the community. Uh, he, he's the guy we're going to go to. Um, he's the one that has responsibility. Um, and the parson would be sometimes even have more authority than, than the mayor or the political leadership. Uh, and certainly more influence. And we have an understanding that the pastoral role is a personal role. That he should be attuned to his people to what their lives are like, what their needs are, how they are living, uh, where they are living, uh, all of that, where they are at spiritually, and, and, and how the, they need to progress, and, and what they need to be warned off from, and what they need to be guarded from. Uh, all of these things require a personal presence. And we have seen this in the last two years under heavy attack, haven't we? to depersonalize church. And the sad part is how many pastors are happy about it. You know why they're happy? Because now your giving is happening automatically um, because you can't come and put offering in a, in a box or plate or whatever. And so we have set up automatic withdrawals. And so um, churches' uh, accounts have actually gone up in the last two years. Did you know that? Not just here, but in other countries as well. They're actually better off financially than they've ever been. But we've depersonalized it. And the pastors are happy. I'm not happy. If that were the case here, I'd be concerned. And I've seen other pastors that, that recognize, oh man, we're in this strong financial position and it's causing havoc in my church because these spiritual disciplines are being lost. And they tried to take action. And the church resisted it because they had gone down that road so far. Oh, that we would understand the personal nature of ministry. And that is why we have persisted even against the 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 declarations of the, of the governor, we have persisted to never stop meeting together because ministry needs to be done personally. Shepherd the flock that is among you. And I understand that to mean that, my, that the, the focus of my shepherding needs to be those within my reach, within sight, within sound, within touch. Secondly, or the second exhortation, serving as overseers. And this, Peter has to take some time to develop because of what it could mean. And oh, that you'd think with all the corrective statements here that people would understand it, but instead it actually uh, is 
necessary even today to explain overseers, as I've already done a little bit this morning. It says, serving as overseers. Peter's selection of words is very purposeful. Uh, he's actually using the word for deacon. Serving uh, as overseers. The, the, the verb form of the word deacon. Serve your people. Now we don't often think, we think of, well, an overseer is someone we all serve. The governor, we serve the governor. And so here we have put these two phrases together. We're going to serve as overseers. We're not going to be served as overseers. We're going to be doing the serving. And rightly did the apostles in the book of Acts, when they, when they recognize that there's, there's the concept of, of the physical needs of people, that their responsibility in the area of serving the church was over the spiritual needs of the people. And they said, we need to give ourselves entirely to prayer and the ministry of the word. That needs to be the priority for us. And, and we're going to select these other men to take care of these things. That doesn't mean that I am absolved of doing that of participating in that. There was a recognition this is also a responsibility of the church. That we need to serve the church. But the priority for the pastor is to serve the spiritual needs of the church, which means that I take it upon me to make sure that you are well fed spiritually. And that's not the end. Okay, That's the beginning. That you, are, you have to be well fed. Right? If you're a malnourished church, I shouldn't expect anything more out of you. Right? I don't take malnourished people and make them run marathons, do we? It will kill them. We don't take malnourished people and make, make them work in the, in the coal mines. Because they're too weakened to do that. And so, number one, to make sure that we have a well-fed church. And you have opportunity to participate in that. And that's why we make sure that we have uh, uh, serve multiple services. That's why I'm pretty sure that we have to meet more often and not less often as the end approaches because we're going to need that kind of strength, the energy that comes from being well-fed to sustain ourselves in these days. But serving isn't just making sure you're well-fed. That certainly falls on my shoulders as, as the bishop, as the overseer of the flock of God, of the, of the, of the people of God, to serve them, make sure they're well-fed, but also that they are well-exercised. And that's a lot harder, frankly. Because that requires something of me, a little bit something different from me. That's to make sure that you are, as we just shared several weeks ago, and we talked about ministering your gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, that you put your life, your, uh, your beliefs, your energies, your spiritual food to work in your life. And living as righteous people, that we do it in ministering one to another, that we are exercising our faith, that you're living by faith and not by sight. These are things that fall into the category of serving as your overseer. To come in and examine and say, are we as a body of Christ and individuals within that body ministering effectually to one another? 
Are we exercising our faith? Because if all I did was keep feeding you and feeding you and feeding you, let you sit there and just get fed, what happens? Yes, you get fat. And you die young. That's what happens. And you are less able to do anything for God. So it is not just the feeding of the, of the flock. It is that taking them out for a walk. We need to go explore what it means to live by faith. We need to explore ministry. We need to explore how do we care for one another till we all reach unity of our faith, unity of our knowledge of God. Those two things combined. Faith is your beliefs in action. Right? James tells us that. You say you have faith and no works? Show me your faith without works because it will be dead. That's a well-fed church that isn't exercised. Is a dead church. It's a works-less, workless church. So we are warned about this, that we need to put this into practice. We go to Hebrews 11, and we say, by faith they did this, by faith they did that, by faith they did this, and we recognize that faith is the outworking of my belief system, that if all I do is sit around and say, oh, I believe all the right things and never do anything for God, that I'm dead. And it is my responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. And sometimes that's hard to do to get them. Now, i got to tell you, I have very little problem getting most of my animals to exercise. In fact, many of them are very anxious to do it. Whether it be your little dog, well, maybe your cat. Your cat doesn't exercise. You don't take your cats are evil, so that's why you can't exercise them. Um, even my yaks, and lo- they love it. My goats just can't wait to go for a walk, go for a run. Go for- they, they understand its value. Oh, that we would understand spiritually the value of putting our faith into practice, that we need to do it. You need to minister. You need to be active. You need to be walking in righteousness. You need that for your spiritual growth. And it's my responsibility to oversee not only your feeding program, but your exercise program as well. i got to keep going, or I'm going to have to preach next week too. Lest you think that means that I have a whip to use, Peter is very careful, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, motives have to be right. But eagerly. I'm not going to do it whether because I have to, I'm not going to be doing it because I get paid well to do it. I'm going to be doing it no matter what. You can hate me, you can love me, you can resist, you can, you can comply, you can do whatever. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it, not as a lord over you, but as one among you. And then he talks about the necessity of being an example. Overseeing by example. And hopefully this is evident that it isn't just about teaching and having uh, every theological I dotted and T crossed and, and to have a fullness of understanding the doctrines of Christ, but it's putting those things into practical applications in our life. That you see that here. That the, frankly, um, I can feed my animal by just dumping stuff in a bowl and they eat it, right? 
But when it comes to exercise, unless I'm willing to let them run free throughout the whole town, um, I have to go with them. Isn't that how you walk your dog? Even if you take them to the dog park and let them loose, you still have to go with them at some point. And I watch people, and sometimes the dog is walking the person instead of the person walking the dog, but, but they're out there, and we have to do it together. We minister together, and thus he says, we're not, I'm not lording over and just sitting back and saying, you do this, you do that. You, no, we are going to minister God's word one to another, faithfully to God's glory. That we do it by example, and this again is, is reiterated by Paul's instruction to Timothy to be an example of the believers in listless areas. And so we serve as mature followers of Jesus Christ, showing by example and by personal engagement, by feeding and by exercising faith, that the church might grow. Because we recognize that it's not my church. It's the chief shepherds. And he's going to show up one day. And when he appears, I don't want to be ashamed over what kind of pastor, elder, bishop I was. And the evidence of what kind of pastor, elder, bishop I am and was is reflected in you. And Paul communicates this in Thessalonians particularly. He says, you are our crowning joy. You are that which, which um, is what we uh, glory in. That you are growing in the Lord. That you are walking in his way. And for this we glorify God. And, and that, is our, that, that is the greatest pastoral appreciation <laughs> Activity is a, is a vital, growing, active church, walking in God's truth. And rightly, John, uh, oh, I, I, I know of nothing better to hear than that my children walk in the truth. That's a pastoral statement. Say, this is what I look forward to. This is, my, what, this is the, the pay that I really want. It's, it's not... It's not a salary, it's not a housing allowance, it's not an expense account, it's not a retirement fund. Those things are not what I'm after. In fact, the more of those you give me, the less of what I really want I'm going to get. Yeah, I said that. And you've heard me say it before, I'll say it again and again. Because what I really want to receive is something that doesn't fade away. My bank account fades away. All I have to do is go on Amazon, just, it's gone. There goes my bank account. Or worse, I go to Craigslist. There goes my bank account. That fades away. No, I have an expectation of something of greater value. I have a pay scale that makes anything on this earth just look sorry. That's what we minister towards the glory of God that will be revealed, that glory that we have an opportunity to share in with a crown of glory that doesn't fade away. And that is the motivation behind a good pastor. It's not how large the audience is, not how large the offering is,
But when the chief shepherd appears, will there be an opportunity to share in God's glory as a faithful steward, manager of his flock? Recognizing that there is a higher counting there. The Bible says that every word spoken you have to give an accounting for. Because you taught this in my name. Oh, that we would recognize this office for what its purpose is for the church. And yes, we're going to see next week how we respond. It says younger people or <laughs> submit to your elders right away. And we're going to see the response somewhat, um, which is a singular statement, just submit. If they are watching out for your souls, if they are faithful in, in their discharge of their responsibilities, if they maintain the qualifications for that office in their life and they are actively engaged in that, the response of the church, the necessity of the church is to respond by submission, not as to one who is the Lord, but rather one who is a fellow servant before you who has your interests in mind. I'm simply the guy God has chosen to use to shepherd the flock that he is a member of to shepherd those that are among him as one of them and simply to recognize that this is God's design. Let's not mess with it. Let's not fiddle with it. I know there's other management styles out there. I know we, and we've tried so hard to bring corporate ideas of leadership into churches and it has been disastrous every time. There's no need to manipulate God's design for the home, for the church. No reason. I'm pretty sure he's a lot better at it than you or me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your design for your church. We pray that we might be good stewards of this church. We want to follow after you. We want to be pleasing in your sight. We want you to receive the glory, the honor, and the praise. We want to be good stewards of your grace. We thank you for the help you've given to us of your word to instruct us in how to do it, your spirit to empower us to do it, and Lord, for the leadership that you've established to direct us in actually doing it. Lord, may your name be praised. And may we recognize the need to double down now in these days, in the exercise of our faith, and in the ministry of, your, of the word one to one another. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.